singing Santas. And I was like, isn't it September? And, and it is September. And she's putting out little Santa outfits already. But Operation Christmas Child is uh, it's coming up before you know it. We have to send the boxes out much earlier than Christmas season itself. So be thinking about that. You'll be getting some more information in the coming uh, weeks. First Chronicles today, chapter 12. I was up early today vacuuming the house and making sure it looked presentable um, when my, mom, wife, my wife, I mean, comes home. So hopefully it does. All right, First Chronicles chapter 12. Uh, we have been looking at David. David has become the king, and we've been introduced to this, uh, this group of mighty men, people that came alongside David, continued to come alongside David when he was a nobody, and then when he became something, so to speak. And... Uh, Today we'll continue to look at that. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we, uh, as we pull back now and as we consider in your word, Lord, uh, just a continuing uh, saga of David's life, Lord, as he uh, moved from sort of a hero in the land to an outlaw in the land uh, to a fellow just trying to be faithful, um, living on the run. And now, Lord, as uh, the doors are opening and the circumstances are such where he's becoming the king of the nation. Uh, Father, there's a lot for us uh, to learn in there. I doubt any of us in this room will become a king of a nation someday. Uh, But Lord, uh, there are certainly so many things that we can learn from David uh, in the process of his life. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have hearts that are open to receive from you. We thank you for the teaching of your word, Lord, for the power Uh, of your word to just get down to the deepest places of our hearts and to resonate. Father, there's a reason this book is the bestseller of all time, because of the great truth, Lord, uh, that is found in in it that comes, I believe, right from your throne. And Father, mingled with the Holy Spirit's work in our life, Lord, nothing can compare. So bless your word this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, as I said, we're going to be in First Chronicles 12. Would you please turn uh, there if you haven't? Verse 1, it says, Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen, they were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right hand or the left hand. They were Benjaminites, Saul's kinsmen. And the chief of them was Ahaziar, then Joash, both sons of Shammah of Gibeah, also Jezael, and Pelet, the sons of Asmaveth, Barakah, Jehu of Anatoth, Ishmaiah of Gibeon, a mighty man among the thirty, and a leader over the thirty, Jeremiah, Jahaziel, Johanan, Josebed of Gedera, Eluzai, Jeremoth, Beliah, Shemariah, Shephathiah, the Herophite, Elkanah, Izahiah, Azarel, Joezer, and Joshabim, the Korahites, and Joela, and Zebediah, the sons of Jeroam of Gedur. And so, we begin now, and we are transported back again in time. So we're not in the, the current, if you will, of David's life here. Uh, David is the king, but this particular story that is given is from a time in his past. And the time in his past that it speaks of is when David was at Ziklag, and he could not move freely, it says, because of Saul. Uh, Saul, remember, being the king. And there David being this outlaw and running to a place, a place of safety, which we will look at today. We have a map of Ziklag, and you can see sort of Ziklag. Do we have it? Yeah, there it is. We have a map of Ziklag, and you sort of see it's in the middle of nowhere. This is down in the southern portion. Again, remember, think of Israel as sort of a rectangle of sorts. 
This would be in the bottom half of the rectangle there. And if you, you look sort of in this little subset over here, this is the Dead Sea. So Jerusalem might be right up around this area, but we're right in the center of this. We're in the middle of nowhere. And this was an area of land that was primarily controlled or still under the control. Some of the cities were still under the control of the Philistines. And this is the place where David would go and where he would run. He's not yet the king of all of Israel, but he is uh, Israel's most wanted. Public enemy number one. People are on the lookout for him. And he's running from one city to the next. In some cases, not even a city. One cave uh, to the next. A uh, few close calls here and there. And he finally ends up in a place that is called Gibeah. This is just before Ziklag. He ends up in a place that is called Gibeah. And we read in 1 Samuel 26 that there was a group of people that were tattletales, if you will. A group that sees David and thinks that, you know what, if we tell Saul, we'll sort of be on Saul's good graces. We'll be his friends. Maybe we'll give us money. Maybe we'll give us positions or honor or something. So in, in 1 Samuel 26, they said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? And, you know, in, in our culture today, what's the rule? Stitch, or snitches get Snitches get stitches, you know what I mean? You can't go telling on people here or whatever. They didn't know that particular rule. And so Saul gathers up his army and he goes to this place that they informed him of and not able to find David that particular evening. He had been in this area, but, you know, by the time Saul got there, David had moved. And so Saul and his men sort of settle down for the night. They set up camp. And essentially the camp is in an open field, Saul in the middle with all of these rings of men that are on the outside of him. Now the passage tells us, it seems to tell us, it doesn't say it in, 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 in exact words, but it seems to indicate that David's just done with the whole thing. I'm tired of this. You know what I mean? And if I die, I die. And so David decides he's going into that camp where Saul and his men are. And he's going to sneak right up into it. And if the guy pulls out a sword and kills him, then he kills him. And so he, he's sort of, in many ways you might say, he's given up. If we die, we die. If you read Psalm 54, you can jot it in your notes, Psalm 54 was written at this time, and you can read sort of into the heart of David, and you can see a man that is sort of like, whatever, I don't care anymore, you know, and uh, he, he sneaks into this town, and when he gets into this uh, field, and when he gets there, Saul's asleep, dead asleep, I think the passage says, or fast asleep, or something like that. The scripture tells us that the Lord put a sleep on all of the men, so everyone is just conked out, and you know, people can walk around and, you know, wet willies and all that, and nobody is waking up. Uh, and there they are, they're just kind of lying there. And one of David's men says this, he says, uh, in 1 Samuel 26, he says, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. All right, this guy's a little fired up. Um, I was trying to think of a title for him. He might be testosterone man or something like that. You know, it's like, settle down here, fella. You know, everything's going to be okay. So David says to him, no, we're not pinning anybody to the ground. We're not killing anybody here. And I'm certainly not going to touch the Lord's anointed at this time. And so as David did that time when he was in the cave, I shared a little while back with you, and Saul came in to relieve himself to go to the bathroom, uh, David says, I'm not going to kill him, but I'm going to let him know I was right next to him. And so David takes sort of his, his canteen and, and Saul's spear, and he goes far away, gets to the other side of this field or whatever, and he, he yells back, and he says, hey, everybody over there, wake up, wake up. And they don't know who it is. They just hear some guy screaming. And, and so they wake up. And David calls the commander of Saul's army, a fellow by the name of Abner, was lying right next to Saul. And he says, Abner, Abner, wake up. And so Abner wakes up. And, and David, these are basically David's words. This is not in the Hebrew or anything. 
But it's basically this. Abner, you stink at your job, is kind of what he yells over to him. I just came to your camp. I took your king's spear and his canteen while you slept. Well, you can imagine everybody sort of kind of rustling now, looking around, and there's no spear. There's no canteen of Saul. And they realize, you know, he was over here, and that's what he's holding over there. And then they realize that it is David. And discovering that it is David, Saul exclaims these words. Again, in 1 Samuel 26, he says, I have sinned. Return, uh, my son David, for I will do you no harm. Now, Saul had said that sort of thing before, didn't he? A few different times where he said, I'm sorry, you're a better man than I am. I'll never bother you again. Only two weeks later to start bothering him again. And so David had heard this before, and it seems from 1 Samuel 27 that he just sort of gave up any hope that anything would ever be reconciled because it says, David said in his heart, now shall I perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now the land of the Philistines, the Philistines were the constant enemy of King Saul. And so David is basically here determining, you know what? I'm giving up, if you will, being an Israelite, and I'll go and live amongst the Philistines. Saul will never come bother me there. He's not going to risk coming to find me and have to go to war with all these other people. David is, quite honestly, you could look at it, David's in a, in a place of depression. David has given up. And one of the things that we, we begin to see here is in that place of depression, some of the compounding mistakes that he is going to make. As you, you read these passages in 1 Samuel that I'm referencing here, one of the things that you'll see is it says that David thought to himself, or David spoke unto himself. And you don't hear anything uh, about during this period of time where David going to the Lord, Lord, what should I do? I'm tired of this. I can't go on anymore. I'm frustrated. Uh, and, and if had he done that, you have to wonder, would the Lord have said, why don't you go and live amongst the Philistines? You see, the agreement for David to live amongst the Philistines, remember when David was killing Philistines in, in big battles and everyone was like, David, you're the hero of Israel? So now, for the Philistines to look at David and to say, yeah, sure, come on in, live here, for them to do that, there was an agreement. And so David could live safely in the town of Ziklag, but his job each day would to gather up a group of people and to go into Israelite towns and to raid those towns and steal all of their, um, the spoil or whatever and bring it back to the king of Ziklag. So David, the Israelite, has to attack the Israelite towns. Well, David really couldn't do that, but he came up with a plan. He would go into, see, do you have that picture? Can you get back to that easily? Is that going to be hard? Um, so when you see that picture again of Ziklag, and you look at some of these neighboring towns that are out in the middle of nowhere, no telephone service or whatever, no TV cameras or whatever. So David began to attack Philistine towns. Now the Philistine king thought he was attacking Israelite towns, and he decided, I'll just kill everybody in the city. No one will know that I've been there, and I'll take the goods back, and goods are goods. The, guy, uh, the king of Ziklag is not going to care or know where the goods came from. And that was sort of his plan. And so David was sort of living this lie. He couldn't attack his people, the Israelites, but he was tired of running from King Saul. And in his own wisdom and, and kind of uh, in that place of depression, he finds himself living this lie. He counseled himself, and I think he came up with a very bad idea. So I think we need to be people that are careful. We talk to ourselves a lot, don't we? Some of us talk out loud to ourselves, and, and that's concerning. Um, but for the most of us, you know, we just kind of talk to ourselves and we, we go through things in our minds and uh, we hash it out. I should have said this and I would have done that. You guys watch Seinfeld? 
I like to watch Seinfeld from time to time. Some of the shows I turn off because they're not appropriate, but other ones are okay. Uh, and there's this story of George, uh, who's one of the lead characters, and he can never come up with the right words to, to say to someone, get back at someone. If someone says something and he wants to cut back at him, he can't think of it until he's driving away in the car, you know, because he's mulling it over in his mind. And many times we do that. We mull things over in our minds and we process things uh, and we, we sort of just wrestle with it. Somebody had said, I don't know who, but, and whether it's true, I don't know, but they said 90% of the things we worry about never come about anyway. You spend all that time and all that energy just sort of worrying about these things. And I think there's a real danger when we spend most of our time talking to ourselves as opposed to talking to the Lord about our problems. A good helpful idea that you might have. You know how they say of lawyers that if they spend any time, and and I like lawyers, I'm making fun of you guys uh, and gals, but if they spend any time on your case, driving down the car thinking about your case, that they credit that, and, and they charge you for that. I spent 15 minutes thinking about this or whatever. So it pops into the, your, your name pops into their mind. It just cost you 100 bucks, you know, something like that. Well, as they're sort of calculating all the time that they're investing into your case, think of it similarly with your life. And if you had two stopwatches in your hand, and every time that you were worrying about something, and every time you were speaking to yourself about something, or kind of talking to other people about my problem that I'm having there, you turned your stopwatch on, and then you turn it off when you're done. And every time you spent talking to the Lord about it and bringing it to him and asking for his wisdom and his direction, his counsel, you turned that stopwatch on. At the end of the week, which face on those clocks would have the, more, the, the larger amount of time? Would it be the time you spent worrying or would it be the time you spent praying about it? And I think if we are a people where this time is increasing and rising up and we're seeking the Lord and we're asking for his direction and we're trusting in him and we're reminding ourselves of the truth of the scripture, I, I don't think we find ourselves in a place like David where we're in Ziklag and we have to go and murder all the people of a neighboring town just to cover up our lies uh, that we have there. Something to consider. Well, David is doing that and for the time being, he's getting away with it. He had a city that he could call his home, finally. I don't have to sleep in caves every night anymore. He has a city called Ziklag. He has men that are gathering around him. Uh, it seems like an initial wave of men of about 400, and then a couple, 200 more men come. So he's got about 600 men that have gathered around him in support. Everything is sort of working out for David. Um, he, he's sort of navigated life circumstances to put himself in an okay place uh, until... One day the king of Ziklag says, hey, we're going to go and raid an Israelite city, and today I want to go with you and see what you do. Now David's like, oh no. Now I'm dead. I'm busted. He caught me. We're going to go raid an Israelite city. What am I going to do now? If I say, you know, I can't go or I can't kill these Israelites, then I'm in trouble. He's going to know for the last year or two that I've been lying to him. So now David has to go and fight against Israel with the Philistines watching. So his two competing desires, one is to live in peace and safety, and the other is to be faithful to his brethren. They're now at odds with him. David had counseled with himself, and it had called up with him. And so, you have to read the rest of the story. It's in 1 Samuel 29, so take your Bibles home this week. You can read the rest of the story. God worked the circumstances out in David's favor. It is, there's maybe no greater example of mercy in the scripture. David deserved to get busted there, and God was just so incredibly merciful to work out the circumstances in his favor. But you can jot it down in your notes. You can look it up, 1 Samuel 29. Well, anyway, all of that to say, 
this is the Ziklag that we're talking about. Uh, this is the place where David was at when he could not move about freely, as it says in verse 1 of chapter 12, because of Saul, the son of Kish. Now, if you look at verse 2, it goes on and it speaks about these Benjaminites. It says they're bowmen, that means uh, bow and arrow, uh, and it says that they could shoot the arrows and sling the stones with either the right hand or the left. Now, they're, they're not like the little rascal slingshot. You know, they're sort of one of these things uh, that David would have used when he slayed um, or slew Goliath. Uh, but these are the Benjaminites. Ambidextrous Benjaminites, that means they're well-trained and well-skilled. They're the first people listed. doesn't necessarily mean they were the first to come to David, but they're the first listed uh, for whatever reason. And another important point is where they come from. They come from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the reason why that's important is because that's Saul's tribe. And so this is while Saul is still alive, and yet there are people from Saul's very tribe that are recognizing that God's hand is on David. So that's the significance of, of uh, referring to them as the Benjaminites. They recognized that uh, it was more important to, be, to follow where the Lord was directing than even blood loyalty, so to speak. And as you read, and as we read, verses 3 through 7, it continues to give us their names. They're led by a fellow named Ahiazar. 22 names that are listed there. Now as you move on to verse 8, Verse 8 is going to introduce us to a new group of people. These are people that are called the Gadites. These are also of the tribe of Israel. Remember the 12 tribes of Israel? One of those tribes were the people of Gad, uh, and they come. So reading in verse 8, it says, Now from the Gadites, they went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelle upon the mountains. Ezer was the chief, Obadiah the second, Eliab the third, Mishmanah the fourth, Jeremiah the fifth, Atai the sixth, Eliel the seventh, Johanan the eighth, Elzabad the ninth, Jeremiah the tenth, and Machbanai the eleventh. Now these Gadites were officers of the army. The least, notice, the least was a match for a hundred men and the greatest for a thousand men. These are the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and it put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. Now, the Gadites... Were, there were two and a half tribes of Israel that decided they did not want to cross over the Jordan to live. They were content to live in the foreign land of Moab. They, that was good enough for them, they said. The pasture lands were lovely and so on. And so they settled on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River. Now the Jordan River is a relatively benign river normally, except in the first month, uh, it's the, the springtime. Our month begins in January. They're our year, I should say, begins in January. Theirs begins uh, in March and April. Uh, our calendar, January 1st, February 1st, and so on, their month begins in what we would call the 15th. March 15th to April 15th is their first month, the month of uh, Nissan. Uh, and so that is sort of the beginning of the year. It's the springtime there. Lots of rains will come into the area at that time, and what will happen is a relatively peaceful Jordan River will begin to swell and actually become quite dangerous. That's the time that these men decided that they were going to cross this river. Now you look at that and you're like, well, that's silly. Why not wait? Why not wait till it's just a creek and you can jump over it? Because God was moving and God was leading. And so God was directing them to go and to support David in this way they were going to go. And if that meant in following him that they were going to risk their own lives to do so, they were willing to do that. Uh, I th find it significant because in our lives, as David is a picture of who the Lord Jesus is, in our lives, it is a risky thing to follow the Lord Jesus, isn't it? 
In order to follow the Lord Jesus, the Scripture says, if you want to come up after me, in Matthew 16, let him first deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Now, we live in a culture, I'm not really quite sure why anymore, but we live in a culture where everybody seems to have a cross on or something around their necks, or we see them all around the streets or whatever it may be, on, on buildings and so on. Uh, and a cross isn't, it's decorative, something like that. But the reality is, you go back to the time of the Scriptures, and the time of the Roman period when some 60,000 people were executed upon a cross. There were much easier, much quicker ways to kill people. You just chop their head off or something like that. Much easier, much quicker. But the cross was a method of execution that was designed to intimidate everybody else that was watching. It typically took a person two or three days to die upon a cross. And so they were beaten uh, to some degree in order to sort of weaken them. And then they were placed up on a cross. And the way that you die from uh, being on a cross is suffocation. Because what happens is, as your body is hanging down, you can't take that good deep breath anymore. And eventually, you will run out of energy. They, if, you've seen on, if you go to a Catholic church or something, you'll, you'll see that the feet of uh, Jesus are resting on like this little block there. Well, that, that's somewhat, it's very accurate, actually. They, they would put a little block there. They'd rest the guy's feet on there, the lady's feet. And then that would be a place where they could kind of push themselves up to take another deep breath before just sort of collapsing back down again. Well, eventually when that person runs out of energy, they run out of breath, and you run out of breath and you die. And so you die of suffocation up there. You die from being unable to breathe. That's the significance when you look at uh, the, the day that Jesus died. It was coming up on the Passover. They said, look, we've got to get their bodies down here. We can't defile the Passover and all this sort of stuff. And so the guards said, well, then go and break their legs. You break their legs, they can't push themselves up again and take that deep breath. And that's when they found that the Lord had died. So there's, there's much easier ways, quicker ways to kill people. But this was a method where a guy is up there for two, three days. They put him right by the side of the road. People would wander by and they would look. Again, you go, I go back to my Catholic school days and church days. Across the top of, uh, of the crucifix, they would put the crime up there. And the message was very clear. If you want this to be you, you commit that crime too. And so they put the crime up above the person's head. Robbery, blasphemy, or whatever it may be. In Jesus' case, claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so when we say, take up your cross, or Jesus says, take up your cross and come follow after me, he's not saying take up your cross and identify with me. He's not saying take up your cross and kind of join our team or something. He's saying take up your cross and die. Die to yourself, die to your will, die to your desires, die to the direction you want to go. Die to your sinful nature and come follow after me. And then you will have life. So these men, these Gadites that are crossing over this river to come follow their David or their king, that's really what we're doing. When we make that decision that I want to be a follower of Jesus, we're crossing over this potential death, if you will. And in our case, we know it's not just a potential. We know that it's a reality. We are giving our lives over to follow this Savior. But we know this, Matthew chapter 10. It says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For the first uh, eight or nine months of my walk with Christ, I'm not sure I really took up my cross to follow after Jesus. Maybe a little one that I hung around my neck or something, but not one that I could die on. But when I finally came to the end of myself and I said, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of sort of living like this Christian. I want to be all in or all out, one or the other. 
When I finally did that and I died to myself, the truth of Matthew 10 resonated in my heart. I finally found life. I found what God had created me for. And that was that I might have relationship with him. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I am delighted that I have known the Lord these last 24 years and have been able to walk with him. Now the passage continues and it says that these Gadites, they went over under the leadership of 11 officers. Now those 11 officers are listed in verses 9 through 13. Notice it says some things about them. Verse 8 says they had faces like lions. That speaks of their ferocity. Man, these guys could fight. And you don't want to mess with them. That sort of thing. It speaks of the fact that they were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. It says that they were experts in both shield and spear. Notice verse 14. It says that the least, you know, the guy that's kind of like, you stink, you can't fight. He could take on a hundred men. And the guy that was the champion amongst them could take on a thousand. These guys were serious. And they could fight. Good men to have on your team if you need some mighty men. Now, as you go on to verse 16, we're reading about some additional Benjaminites that gather around David, as well as people from his own tribe of Judah. So 16 to 18 says, Now some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold of David, and David went out to meet them. And he said to them, If you've come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if to betray me to my, to my adversaries, although there was no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. Excuse me. Then the spirit clothed Amasai, Amasai, chief of the thirty, and he said, We're yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. Then David received them, and he made them officers of his troops. So imagine, you know, this is how the conversation begins. If you're going to mess with me today, I'm going to get you. You know, kind of, that's, that's like, hello, ding dong, you know, and the door opens up, and David is already starting uh, almost like a fight here. Talk about tension. Uh, as the conversation begins. But David had a, a reason to be a little tense with this crowd of people that are gathering here. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, you remember snitches get stitches? These were the snitches. And now they're coming to him and saying, hey, we want to be on your side. And so David is, you know, he's right to, to kind of be like, look, if you're coming here to mess with me again and to, you know, tattle on me and tell me where, tell people my enemies where I'm at, then you, you just need to know. You know, this sort of thing. So David begins there, uh, and he addresses that. Now they come to David, and they say, no, no, we want to be on your side. We want to be your friends. So David really here is saying, look, I'm willing to forgive you, which is remarkable, isn't it? I don't know if I would be. You know what? I'm not going to kill you because I'm a good guy, but don't come around here anymore. We don't want you here. You know, I, that's probably my response. But David's response is, look, I'm willing to forgive I'm willing to let all that go past here. He said, but this is what you need to know. The Lord is with us. The Lord is working in our lives. The Lord is directing our paths. And so if you're lying and you're trying to trick us, the Lord's going to find you out. And he's going to take care of it. And so David essentially entrusts himself to God here. He refuses to take matters in his own hand. And he says, I'm just going to trust the Lord. Now notice what happens in verse 18. The leader of this group is a fellow by the name of Amasai. And it says that he was clothed with the Spirit of God. Clothed with the Spirit of God. If you will, the Holy Spirit, some versions say it came upon him, but the Holy Spirit took over Amasai and prophesied through him, so to speak. And he says, we're yours, O David, and we are with you, O son of Jesse. Peace be to you and peace be to those that are on your side, your helpers, for your God helps you. 
So David now says, all right, great, come on in. And they join his army. Now we move on to verse 19, and it speaks of the men of Manasseh. It says, now some of the men of Manasseh deserted to David when he came with the Philistines for the battle against Saul. Yet he did not help them, for the rulers of the Philistines took counsel, and they sent him away, saying, at peril to our heads, he will desert to his master Saul. So David went back to Ziklag. Now, you remember the story I shared earlier now where the king of Ziklag said, come on, we're going to go off into battle, and I'm going with you today. Let's go kill some Israelites. And David's like, oh, no, what am I going to do now? And you remember how I told you you had to read the passage on your own, 1 Samuel 29? Well, you still do. That's your homework this week. But God worked the circumstance out. And there's a little hint here. I don't want to ruin your homework assignment for you here. Um, but the people of the Philistines basically said, look, if we go into battle here with David, what better way for David to win back Saul's heart than in the midst of the battle to turn on us and to kill a bunch of Philistines? So I'm not going into battle with David, is what some of the other Philistines' leaders said. And Ziklag, the king of Ziklag, is like, no, David's cool. He's going to be fine. You know, everything will be great. And they're like, no, none of us are going. If he goes, we don't go. You pick. And so the king says, all right, David, I'm sorry. You've got to go back home. And David's like, whew, thank God. You know what I mean? And David goes home delighted. This is great news. I'm sure he faked it a little. Oh, man. You know, kind of thing. So David goes back to Ziklag. Now, here's the reason for the story in this context. So David and all these men of Manasseh, these men that had come over, they were going to fight with David. They're sort of behind David, if you will. Um, traveling with him, David is told, you know, we can't go. And obviously, if David can't go, then the men of Manasseh can't go. And so they're making their way back to Ziklag. And as they're coming, remember, Ziklag is in the middle of nowhere. As they're, they're coming up on Ziklag, they notice like smoke that is rising up or whatever. The city's on fire. And they notice something is wrong. And I'll, I'll read the rest of this to you here. Verse, uh, I think it's verse 20. It says, now, as he went to Ziklag, these men of Manasseh deserted to him. It lists their name. They helped David against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were commanders in the army. For from day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army like an army of God. So you notice there, it says they helped David against the band of raiders. You see, while David was away from Ziklag, in the scene that I'm sharing with you, a band of raiders came into his town and lit the city on fire and took away his wives, the wives and the kids of the men of Israel. And now David is re returning to this particular place here and f seeing what's going to happen here. Uh, this is found for us in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Let me read this to you, okay? It says this, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev. Now the Negev, today we call it the Negev with a V on the end. It's basically the entire southern portion of Israel. It's all deserty type of land there. And so... These Amalekites, which is a type of Philistines, they had raided the area of Negev and they came to Ziklag, where David and his men were. They overcame Ziklag, they burned it with fire, and they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They didn't kill anyone, but they carried them off and they went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Now stop. You're the leader of the men. You're David. What are you feeling right now? You're devastated, aren't you? Your wife has just been, and uh, your kids have been, just been taken away. Your city's on fire. These people, this city of all these people that came in support of you, you kind of let all of them down. You're devastated. You're hurt. You're, you're sad. Not only for the other people, but for your own family. And then notice it says, 
then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept. They wept until they had no more strength. Have you ever cried that much? Have you ever cried till you really felt like you couldn't cry another tear and you just collapsed in exhaustion? Well, that's what David and his men are experiencing in this instance here. And notice it says, And David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each, of, each for his sons and daughters. And so here is David devastated. He lost his family too. And now everybody in sort of their devastation, they begin to turn on David. And they, somebody says, we should kill you. It's your fault. You know, it's always nicer to blame somebody else or whatever. And it's your fault. And they're picking up stones and they're going to kill David. And David is greatly distressed, it says here. But notice the ending of this verse. I think we have it. I don't know if it's there. But it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And again, I, I, don't, I don't know for certain, but I'm sure there are psalms that speak to this. Sometimes the psalms, at the top of the psalm, it has, there's a name for it, I forget what it's called, but it has a title that it was in the original. Not the titles that we put in our Bibles to help us l- discover things, um, but it was in the original. And some of those titles will say, this was when David was in Ziklag running from Saul. But other instances it doesn't say necessarily when he wrote it, so we don't know for certain. But I suspect David probably wrote a psalm during this time period. And it had something to do with strengthening himself in the Lord his God when he was in a place of great distress. Well, I personally, I can only imagine the scene. I can only imagine coming back over the hill, seeing Ziklag on fire, and your stomach just dropping. And you know that there's something bad. You know that something took place, something happened. I remember when my son, when he was about a year and a half, Jacob, who was 13 now, he fell into our pool. Uh, and uh, we didn't have a fence around the pool at the time. And so when my wife uh, kind of made her way into the back area, what happened was, was as it always happens, there's a lot of people, but nobody was paying attention, so to speak. And my wife, where's my son? And found him in the pool. Uh, she ran over to him, and you know, there he was, face down or whatever. Uh, and the emergency people were called and all that sort of stuff. And he had just a, a very little bit of strength left, very small little cry. But by the time the emergency people got there, he had kind of coughed it out, and he was um, crying like a little kid again, as uh, they do. Um, but my wife called me. I was at work, and she called me, and sort of there was this long pause. You know, Greg, something happened to Jacob, i got to tell you, and there was this long pause. You know, and, and from that point on, whenever I received a phone call from my wife, and there was sort of this long pause, my stomach would just drop because I know that somebody died or something happened or somebody got this or somebody got that. Uh, and... It was sort of that sense here. Their stomachs drop and they dread the worse. You know, maybe it's okay. Maybe there's a bonfire. Maybe they're just playing or something. You know, and they go running around and they go running from house to house. And not only are all the TVs and stuff missing, but there's not a person to be found. All the kids are gone. All the wives are gone. And the devastation of that. And I can understand them turning on David and saying, this is your fault. You're so stupid to have let this happen. I'm going to kill you. We're going to kill you. You know, I can understand this whole thing. And I wonder if it's at this point, because remember, David is returning, and behind him are these new Manassites, these guys that had just said, we want to join up with you and do what you do. We want to be with you. There's this group of Manassites, and I wonder if one of them just comes, and I don't know, but sort of puts a hand on David's shoulder as David is weeping, and he says, it's going to be okay. We'll help you. What do you need us to do? And that, I think, that little bit of encouragement in that circumstance was enough to sort of revive David and sort of like shake him out of it and bring him back to his senses 
and he says, let's seek the Lord. Isn't that great? You remember when David went down to Ziklag, he didn't seek the Lord. He took counsel with himself, the passage says. But here now David says, let's seek the Lord. And together they seek the Lord, and the Lord directs them, go find your wives, wives, go find your kids. And they do. And you can read about the rest of the story in 1 Samuel chapter 30, where they rescue all of their children and all of their family, and they bring them all back. Now, as you continue in, into our passage today, if you look at verse 22, it says, For, From day to day men came to David to help him, and there was a great army, like an army of God. And then you read verse 23, And these are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron. Between verse 22 and 23 is when Saul dies. So remember, we're going back in time to tell the story of these events. Uh, we already know that Saul has died here. Saul dies right in between verse 22 and verse 23. And it's at that point that all these numbers of the divisions of the armed troops that verse 23 speaks of, it's at that point that, they, that all of these armies come to David and they decide they want to make him king over all of the nation of Israel. And as we look at verses 23 to 27, you begin to have a list. First off, notice in 23, it says, these are the troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him. Remember, when, David, when King Saul died, they, the, the people of Judah came to David. They said, we want you to be our king. We're one of the 12 tribes, but we're one, and we'd like you to be our king. And it was at that point that David moved his kingdom to Hebron, another fortified city in the southern area of Israel. Uh, now, seven years after Saul's death, all of the nation comes to him, and they say, we want you to be king of all of us. And as you read verses 23 through 37, look at just 24, for instance, as an example. It said, well, then the men of Judah came bearing shield and spear, and they were 6,800 armed troops. 25, of the Simeonites, mighty men of valor, 7,100 armed troops, and so on. And you go on, and you have all these numbers that are listed there that are beginning to gather there's close to 380,000 armed soldiers that come to David, that gather around Hebron, if you will, and they're spilling out into the desert area, and they say, look, you see all of us? We're just a portion of our homes. We want you to be our king. You can just imagine how many people there. Three-tenths of a million people have gathered, and these are just the representatives. And so these people are saying, look, God's taken the kingdom from Saul. He's given it to you. We're here to confirm that truth. We want you to be our king. Look at verse 38. It says, Now all these men of war, they were arrayed in battle order. They came to Hebron with full intent to make David king. Likewise, all the rest of Israel excuse me, were of a single mind to take David to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. Also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulon and Naphtali, they came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on an oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was great joy in Israel. So there was, a, as you can see, there was a great party. And what we see in all of this, uh, you, we, you have to put yourself in the, in the place of David here. What he had been waiting for for 15 years is finally coming to fruition. All the struggle, all the pain, all the doubts, all the momentary lacks of, um, lapses of faith, the periods of depression, the mistakes that he made, the good times and the bad times, all of that has now come to an end. And one morning, 
no fanfare or anything, but one morning, you just look over the horizon, and here comes 7,000 people from this direction. And, you know, that's weird. And here comes another 5,000. And before you know it, there's 300,000 people that are gathered outside of your tent, so to speak. And what started as a normal day ended where David is now the king of all of Israel. This is remarkable. And it finally came about. There's an important lesson for us in this. Because as these men gathered around David to serve him when he was a nobody, and now they're gathering around him when he is the king, the important lesson for us in this as well is that you and I that are followers of Christ, and I understand not everybody here is at this point a follower of Christ, but you're on the journey. You're trying to figure out who he is and what he means for you in your life, and that's awesome. All of us were there. Uh, any of us that are a believer now, we were where you are uh, today. But at, at some point in time, you come to the point and you say, I want to be a follower of Christ. And, and those of us that are followers of Christ, we are serving a king that is not yet fully coronated. He's not full king, really, is he? No, of course not. Look at the world in which we live in. You know, but we do know that there is a day when our king will return, if you will. And in the way that these people came to, G, uh, to David there in the middle of the wilderness, and they said, we want you to be king of all of Israel. The scripture says that there is a day when the king will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wanted to read this to you. This is in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19, you have the story of the end of things. This is uh, at the conclusion of the seven-year uh, tribulation period. The scripture calls it the Battle of Armageddon. And it says this, at the conclusion of that time, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the, wine, the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name that is written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, you read that passage and it says... Uh, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen were following him on white horses. That's you and I. That's you and I. We're going to be on the back side of this. This vision is from the front side. So read it well because you're not going to see it from the front side. You'll be seeing it from the back side here. But this is when the Lord Jesus is fully coronated. And he will reign and rule upon this earth. This new kingdom that will be established according to the scriptures. Those are glorious days. Well, in, as we await those days, or that day, I guess is a better term, we look forward to the return of our soon-coming king. And we remain faithful to him, even in the midst of the struggle, and in the running, and in the warring against enemies that come up against us on a daily basis that the, the Scripture says is just natural, and it's going to occur. But we look forward to the day that our king will be crowned, king of kings and lord of lords. Amen? Do you agree? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. For our Lord, we thank you for his faithfulness. Lord, we're so grateful for his righteousness. Father, we're thankful for his uh, just very uh, delicate caring for our souls. 
Father, you loved us. And you've demonstrated that love for us. You continue to manifest that love for us. And, and Lord, we delight in that. And Lord, uh, we cross over our Jordan, so to speak. Lord, we enter in, if you will, to a baptism where we die unto ourselves and we're raised to a newness of life. We take up our cross to come and to follow after you. And if that means a life of warring, then that's what it means. As we struggle with ourselves and, and even the temptations of this world in which we live, our desire is to be in a right place with you. And so, Father, we humbly lay ourselves down at your feet as your servants, and we look forward to your guidance and your direction as to how you would have us to move forward. Father, when we're struggling and when we feel we don't want to go on anymore, Lord, I do pray that you would refresh our spirit as you did David in Psalm 54, Lord. Give us a heart that is after you, we ask in Jesus' name. Oh, 